All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are ready to begin, and we are going to start, as usual, with a word of prayer. So uh, if you would please bow your heads, let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this chance to be able to gather in your name. We pray that you would guide our time tonight. We thank you for the gift of this book, but more importantly, for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, and for your word that testifies to him. Lord, we pray that you would bless our time together and that you would use it to deepen our understanding of the things of your kingdom and to walk more and more in step with you and to be more and more transformed into the image of your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Um, Can I ask one of y'all to close these doors for me? Thank you. So we have some music to listen to as usual. So uh, we will see what happens. Uh, Well, maybe I just went past it. Uh, Some of you might know this. Yes, good job. The Lark Ascending. Yes, Rayfawn Williams, very good. Cynthia Patterson to the head of the class. Yes, well done. Um, one of the things about that particular piece is that it is perhaps the most quintessentially English piece of music that there is. It's greatly beloved in England. And it is also something that if you are a fairly accomplished violinist, is something that is part of the repertoire that you learn to show that you have reached a certain level of mastery. But it's beautiful because the violin mimics the song of the lark. And one of the most classic English scenes of God in his heaven, the king or queen is on her throne or his throne, and all is right with the world, is the morning with the sun coming up over the green fields and the lark flying up into the blue sunlit sky singing his heart out. It's quintessentially British. And be on the lookout for where that lark is going to appear in the chapter that we look at tonight. So let's begin with saying our scripture from 2 Timothy. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, And in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. And these are great words to contemplate. I'm hoping that you will memorize this either intentionally or by accident by the fact that we say it every week uh, because there's... uh, much to be learned if we will incorporate this understanding of reality into our lives. So I just want to say a word of welcome uh, to all of you who are here in person and all the people that are joining us on the live stream. We have a new contingent of people from Canada on the live stream that we're happy to have with us. And just a couple of words, especially if you're new about how to approach this class. There are three ways to do this. You can be on the beach, which means you don't do anything. Uh, You appear when you feel like it, you bask in the sun, you read nothing, you don't look at the handouts, you don't click on my emails when I send them out to you, and that is perfectly fine. I don't disdain you for that at all. Whatever level you're comfortable with, I'm very delighted for you to be here. Or you can snorkel, which means you go deep on the parts that you like and not so much on the others, or you can scuba dive which means that, like me, you may have an inner nerd trying to get out. 
uh, and you will want to go down the rabbit hole on every little aspect of things. So if you are a scuba diver, be on the lookout because there's going to be a 20 plus page handout um, that is attached to the email that will go out next week uh, where you can take a deep dive into one of the topics we're gonna talk about tonight. Uh, if you are new to the class, please uh, Google St. Philip's Church Charleston and when our website comes up, uh, look for me or just send an email to the church email and say I'd like to be added to the Lewis class email list and that way you will get all the things that we're sending out uh, for the class and that will help you be prepared and if you miss a class it's got a summary and all of those things that will be of help to you. Uh, one of the other things about this book that I've mentioned before but I want to encourage you, slow down. Uh, it's really easy because the chapters are really short to just read right through. And that's fine, it's a free country, you can do that. But, please don't. Uh, you will enjoy it so much more if you just take it a little bit at a time and chew on what's in the chapter because these chapters are deceptively simple. So, uh, one way to slow yourself down is to read out loud. Uh, if you want to really give people something to uh, talk about and stare at you when you're at the coffee shop, go with a friend to the coffee shop and read the chapter back and forth to each other. Um, that's a great thing to do, and it also can be a great conversation starter in coffee shops about why you're reading this book. Uh, and then the announcement about mere Anglicanism. Most of you have heard this announcement, but we continue to be just really excited about this. Now, talking with one of the speakers who's in Oxford and he was telling me that he had just finished and submitted to the publisher the first draft of what I think is going to be a groundbreaking new book um, that he's writing about Lewis and Narnia. And the great thing is that the topic we had assigned him before we even knew he was writing this book was exactly what he's writing the book about. So the book won't have come out by the time of mere Anglicanism, but we'll get to hear um, the major points of it. So if you are um, able to get to Charleston, if you don't live here, it will be so worth your while. Uh, MirrorAnglicanism.org, you can see all the information about that. So uh, tonight's music, The Lark Ascending, Ray Vaughan Williams is one of the great British composers. Uh, he and Lewis were contemporaries and uh, knew of each other and probably knew each other just slightly. Uh, but his, will, his music is glorious. If you were here uh, Sunday morning listening for the opening hymn, the opening hymn, since it was All Saints Sunday, is that great hymn of the church for all the saints. And Ray Fawn Williams wrote the tune for that. I don't usually ask or suggest people do this, but you might want to, if you don't go to St. Philip's, go back to our live stream from this past Sunday and just listen to that hymn, and the words will come up as you listen to it. Uh, it is a great hymn and a great devotional exercise. So just again, this is Lewis when he was uh, a freshman at Oxford, and Oxford is in England are deeply connected with everything going on in this story. But I want to just rehearse again why this book merits study today. The first thing is its emphasis on eternal life. We live in a culture where people don't believe in eternal life for the most part. And in this book, it is very clear that you live eternally either in one place or another. Uh, and the descriptions of what one destination is like versus the other uh, are quite intense. And the beauty of the way that paradise is described will fire your heart with longing for that. Secondly, narcissism and pride are rife in our culture. Uh, just watch the news anytime, it will be right there in front of you. And Lewis shows the consequences of both those things. Truth as an absolute is under attack in our culture, and Lewis is showing in the story the beauty of absolute truth and the danger of believing that you can create your own truth and what that will do to you as you live your life. Also, we are a culture that is obsessed with our rights and what we deserve. And Lewis uh, does a brilliant job of skewering our pride about that and instead showing again the biblical model of servanthood and self-sacrifice. 
There also is great clarity in this book that there are many choices in life that are either or. There's a fork in the road, and you cannot go both ways. And then lastly, it's a brilliant rebuttal of works righteousness, the idea that you can earn your way to God, and much emphasis on the centrality of the cross of Christ. So, last week, uh, we looked at chapter 2, which was a just wonderful chapter full of so many things. Uh, But as I've said before, for Lewis, less is more. He doesn't give us every little detail. He leaves enough with us to get our minds thinking and imagining. And so the first character we see in the story from last week is a tousle-headed poet, this young man who believes he's been oppressed, uh, who always is about blaming others for everything that's happened in his life. Um, He has no joy in his life at all. Um, They're on the bus, and people are yelling and screaming, and uh, there's a stampede, there are knives, there are gunshots, and yet it all sort of seems normal. And part of what Lewis is doing is pointing out how when you lose civility and language and discourse, that violence comes very easily out of that kind of environment. Not that that might be relevant in our culture. Um, Then the third person we meet is the intelligent-looking man. And I love this, because the man looks intelligent. However, looks can be deceiving. But we learn some things about where the buses come from. We learn that this gray town where the bus originated is endless. As the bus flew up in the air, it wasn't like when you leave Charleston and you start seeing the the waterways and the forest and the greenery. It's just gray town, as far as you can see, all the way to the horizon. Um, He also tells us that the villains of old, like uh, Tom Orlando or Tom Berlin, who we talked about, Genghis Khan, uh, Henry V, all these various other villains are in this gray town. And so we go from his description uh, to hearing whispers from him about fear of the dark and the idea that they are coming. And if you are, if you're a fan of Stranger Things, uh, one of the things you can just sort of imagine is like from the upside down, those characters, if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry. Uh, But it's that sort of creepiness uh, that he's talking about with this darkness, and they're whispering and afraid, and the cultured man, and now look, he's not cultured looking, he might actually be cultured, comes in and says, oh, no, 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 darkness, no, no, that's an old-fashioned idea. No one who's smart these days actually believes in darkness. Oh, no, 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 this half-light is leading to the dawn of a new age, a new age of spiritual reality and freedom for everyone, and oh, these tales, silly old wives' tales about darkness. No, 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 no. Well, we'll see what happens. And then, right after that, and again, it's not an accident that we've been talking about darkness and light. Guess what happens as they're traveling through the air on the bus? It starts getting light. And the first thing that the light does is it reveals the spectacular, shining, bright beauty that's surrounding the bus with this brilliant blue sky. And the narrator, whom we'll learn is Lewis, opens the window. Remember those bus windows that are so cranky and hard to get down? He opens the window, and this flood of just delicious, fresh air comes into the bus. And all the other passengers are like, stop! It's awful. Stop that fresh air. And so he closes the window up, and they all start screaming and yelling at him. And Lewis then looks at these passengers, and he realized that the light has revealed things about them, that they are, they are not a, a busload of the most attractive people that you have ever met, um, that they are ugly and gaunt and um, full of faces full of pain and grimace and all of that. So the light is revealing both beauty and ugliness. So there are a couple of themes that we talked about in chapter two. The first one is importance of perspective, that where you're looking from makes a huge difference. 
So remember, the story starts off, and we don't know where they are. They're just at this bus stop, and we don't really know much about the bus stop. But once that bus takes off into the air, what we see is this huge gray town that covers all of what the eye can see. And so that getting above the situation helps show something about it. Also, the difference in perspective about the bus itself. Remember that when the bus comes down, Lewis talks about that it's full of these glorious colors and it's shining and even the driver is shining and seeming to exude goodness. And Lewis, the narrator, is able to appreciate this, but all the other people, their perspective on the beauty and light of the bus is to growl at it, which is a very interesting response because they don't just say bad things, but they growl. What usually growls? Yeah, it could be a dog, it's animals. Animals growl. So Lewis is saying something about these people's humanity and whether they're really living into it or whether they're descending in a different direction. The second theme is the danger of blaming others for our misfortunes. Now, I know none of you fine people in this room have ever blamed someone else for something that you did wrong or something that didn't turn out the way it was supposed to or where that grade didn't come in quite at the level that you had expected it to. But, you know, there's other people out in the world that blame others. This is for them. Or maybe it's for all of us. Uh, but the point that Lewis has tried to make is it is all too easy, instead of taking a look in the mirror and taking responsibility when you make poor choices and things don't go well, and using that as an opportunity for repentance and learning, it is all too easy to say, I'm a victim, I'm a victim, they were not fair to me, they did not take my order right in the drive through line, and I was right to curse out that poor girl sitting in that drive through window. You know, there are so many ways where we blame other people for things that they didn't do that weren't their fault and that very often might be our own fault. Uh, that is a spiritual danger. Um, the third point that we just already mentioned is that constant quarrelsome speech easily leads to casual violence. And part of the reason for that is that we are told early on in the book of Genesis that human beings are the summit of God's creation. As God works through this creation story in Genesis, you see each thing is good, but when God gets to man, that's the only place where he says, let us make man in our own image. And then it says, God made man in his own image, male and female, he created them. And that is the only part of creation where God says, and it was very good. And whenever we demean people that are made in the image of God, when we decide it's okay to hate people who are made in the image of God because they're different from us in some way or we don't agree with them in some way, that is the kind of thing that leads to rhetoric, which is full of language that is violent, and it is a very short bridge from that to actual acts of violence. And we as Christians have so much instruction in the scriptures about guarding our tongues and about believing the best and loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us that we of all people should be the ones careful about this kind of speech. And then fourthly, the idea that, idea that light reveals truth. Uh, that is such an important scriptural thing and we're gonna see it in the story that the country where this bus has landed is absolutely full of light. So there is nowhere to hide, which is, uh, sounds kind of frightening, but it's that whole double-edged sword about light that it shows us beauty that is beyond our imagining, but it also reveals the things that we would like to keep hidden. So that brings us to chapter three. So a quick summary of the chapter. So they're in the bus. The bus is flying, remember? So this is not a normal sort of story. This is not the bus going down a road and stopping at the traffic light and all that. This bus is like, 
And so the bus is flying, and they're flying and flying and flying. And remember, they're in blue, bright sky, so bright that it almost hurts your eyes. And then they notice that they are approaching the rim of a cliff. So they've been in some kind of chasm, uh, which that ought to get your attention. We'll get there in a minute. So they are in this chasm, and they're coming up over the cliff. And who knows what's on the other side of it? But they kept up over the rim of the cliff, and then they see this beautiful country, uh, an emerald ribbon, a country of green grass and a broad river, and that the, the atmosphere, it is the light and coolness drenching it like a summer morning. And please don't think of a summer morning in Charleston, because that drenching is sweat and humidity. This is a summer morning in England, where it might be 60 degrees and 20% humidity, and you go outside, and there's the dampness of the dew, and this fresh breeze, and the beauty of the golden sunlight, and that lark, that lovely lark coming up out of the fields, going way up into the blue sky, singing his song. And so we have all of those elements right there, just beauty with a capital B. And it's a larger and wider space, so much so that it's beyond description, not just vastly broad, but vastly deep and high as well. And there is within that a sense of freedom that the narrator tells us was a freedom that was beyond any he had ever experienced anywhere in his life, but also a sense of being exposed in a way that was very uncomfortable. So the light gives a new perspective. And so as the narrator is talking, he looks back at his fellow passengers and he realizes that they're ghosts. He can see right through them. There's nothing there. And when they walk, the grass doesn't bend. There's no, they have no substance at all. He says they look, if anything, like stains on the air. So Lewis is playing with us a little bit here, but we're going to come back around to that. And then he says, after a while, his perspective shifted again. Oh, look, there's that perspective word again. And all of a sudden, he said, Maybe it's not that the passengers are ghosts. Maybe it's that the reality of where we are is a reality that is unlike any reality that we've ever experienced on this earth. That the light, the trees, the grass are just different. And that they're so much solider than anything on earth. And the grass and even the dew drops on the grass as these ghosts or people, whatever they may be, walk on them, are completely undisturbed. The dewdrop doesn't even tremble. And yet, Lewis, the narrator, decides he's going to try to pick a daisy. And he bends down and he tugs and tugs and tugs and tugs and strips the skin off his hands and he can't even move it. And then he sees a leaf that's fallen and he tries to pick it up, but that one little leaf is so heavy that he can't even pick it up. And I want to commend to you a handout that's on the table um, that will also be in your email that is an excerpt from uh, Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, about dimensions. And part of what Lewis is getting at here is that in God's reality, there are four, far many more dimensions than there are in our world. And my, my favorite example of this, which some of y'all have heard before, how many of y'all ever had Flat Stanley in elementary school? All right. Oh, I'm so sad that the rest of you didn't have this joyous experience. Flat Stanley is what your teacher does on a rainy day when the class is unruly. And so you draw a figure on a piece of paper that represents you and then you may color it a little bit, and you cut it out, and then the teacher gets to go away and take it to the laminating machine. And so uh, it comes back laminated, and then the idea with Flat Stanley is it's part of show and tell. Uh, so you take Flat Stanley when you go on vacation, or some classes it's Flat Stanley, there's one for the classroom, and it goes home with a different student on the weekend, and so the next week the student has to come back, and Flat Stanley has to say where he went during the weekend. But just think about Flat Stanley went to Niagara Falls, okay? 
So Flat Stanley's up there, this laminated paper cutout. Flat Stanley's experience of Niagara Falls is not the same as any sentient, normal human being's experience of Niagara Falls. Flat Stanley was there, but he didn't hear the roar. He didn't feel the mist. He didn't see the beauty because he's in just two dimensions and he has no senses. But part of what Lewis is trying to get at is that we are like Flat Stanley in terms of the dimensions of God's creation. And that's part of what Lewis is trying to get at here, that this world where the bus has landed is more solid and deeper and fuller and more textured than anything within our own experience. So the next thing we see is the passengers, instead of embracing the glorious beauty and freedom of this place, they are terrified. They are terrified. And so they are hanging back by the bus. And one of them looks around and says, oh, 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 I can't stand it. It gives me the pip. And she runs back to the bus just because she can't stand the light and the air and the spaciousness of it. So others are profoundly uncomfortable because they want to schedule. They want to know what's next. I can kind of relate to that a little bit. Uh, they want to know what's next. They don't like this idea of just, you know, if you're a responsible person and you came on a bus, you want to make sure you know when the bus might be leaving because you don't want to, like, not know. That might not work out well. But they are told that there is no schedule, that no one needs to ever return to the bus if they don't want to, and they don't ever have to go back to the gray town if they don't want to. And their minds are blown by this. They just don't know what to do with it, and it makes them uncomfortable and terrified. So the other thing that's interesting is some of the passengers say they are expecting to be met by someone. And Lewis doesn't tell us anything about that. We're just like, what? Uh, but we'll find out more about that. So then we go back and we get more description of what this land is like. That is a vast solitude of greenness and of light. Mountains and high cities off in the distance, steep forests and valleys, and height so enormous that it's almost impossible to describe that these mountain peaks and these beautiful cities that are so elevated are disappearing in and out of the beautiful clouds that are in the sky. So it is full of beauty, and it's also full of this what I would call a pregnant quiet. It's very quiet, but it's not a quiet of emptiness. It's a quiet that is pulsing with life. And then lastly, at the end of the chapter, we hear that there are these bright shapes that are in the distance. And at first, we don't really know what those bright shapes are, but eventually they're seen to be people or something like people coming to meet the bus. And as they're coming, the ground is trembling under their steps. And unlike all of these ghosts or whatever they may be, when they walk, the grass goes down and the dew touches their feet and the dew is disturbed and clearly they are making an impact as they walk. And as they walk, there's a sweet aroma that comes with their presence. And as they get closer, it becomes evident that these people are massive and that they are radiant, that they're shining and beautiful and ageless, that they are people of grandeur. And some are naked, some are robed, but that doesn't seem to take any dignity away from them or excite any kind of uh, lustful interest. It's just the sheer beauty and fullness of these people or whatever they are that are approaching. And then it just stops. So we don't really know what's going to happen next. We don't learn about who these people are or anything about them. But this chapter does a lot of scene setting for what is going to be taking place. And it reminds us of some things that are really important. And there are several things that are 
I would say probable, but just to be careful, I will say possible influences on chapter three. So the first one that we talked about earlier in this class is the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. And this is in Luke chapter 16. This is one of the most important teachings on heaven and hell in the New Testament. And remember, this is Jesus speaking. And Jesus could have told any story that he wanted to, to talk about what heaven and earth and hell are like. And this is the story that he chose to tell. So what that means is that we would do well to pay attention to it. So there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. And I just want to say here, if you are thinking about a cute little cockapoo that's coming up and nestling this poor man and trying to comfort him, no, 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 no. In the Middle East in this time period, dogs are like hyenas. Um, they're not pets, um, they're scavengers. So having a dog come and lick your sores means that he might be getting ready to have you for dinner. So that's not the kind of dogs we have at home. The time came when Lazarus the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So the rich man is in hell, Lazarus is in heaven, but the rich man can see him, which is very interesting. So the rich man called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Subtext here. It is all about me, and clearly I have ended up in the wrong place. Lazarus is a servant. What in the heck is he doing up there with you? Tell him to get back to doing what he's supposed to do and get him to come wait on me because I'm more important than anybody else in the world. That's not in the Bible, but that's the subtext. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place. Oh, did the bus just fly out of a chasm? Hmm. A great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. The rich man answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone should rise, if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Abraham said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Hmm. Do we know of somebody who rose from the dead? Yes. So this is so poignant because Jesus is telling the story before his crucifixion. But so many aspects of the story are going to play out over the course of the great divorce. So I would encourage you to mark this in your Bible and go back and read it a couple of times, get familiar with it, because different aspects of it are going to show up. The next part, and this is where I, you all have no idea how I have to restrain myself. Um, so the green country and the beautiful mountains in J.R. Tolkien's story, Leaf by Nickel. Has anybody in here read Leaf by Nickel? Well, let me just say, you have a great treat in store for you. Um, Leaf by Nickel is that rare Tolkien work that's short. Uh, it is a 
absolutely brilliant story that is full of rich theology and beautiful imagery. It's about an artist named Nigel, and he's trying to paint a beautiful tree. And as he tries to paint this beautiful tree, he becomes so obsessed with the beauty of a leaf that he starts spending all of his time just working on painting this one leaf. And he ultimately ends up spending almost his whole life painting just this one leaf. And then he is set free to go off into this other country where he begins a journey across this country uh, toward this beautiful paradise-like land. And, well, I'm not going to tell you more because I don't want to spoil it, but please read it. It is so good. Uh, A quotation from it. Before long, he, that is Nigel, found the path on which he had started had disappeared, and he was rolling along over a marvelous turf. It was green and close, and yet he could see every blade distinctly. You could go on and on, but perhaps, not perhaps, forever. There were the mountains in the background. They did get nearer very slowly. He was going to learn about the high pasturages and look at a wider sky and walk ever further and further toward the mountains, always uphill. Well, the more we read, you're going to see there's a lot of resonance between that and this green country where the bus has just landed. And Tolkien uh, and Lewis were part of this group called the Inklings, where they're reading each other's work. These things were being written right about the same time. So if that was not enough, then there is the celestial city in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. How many of y'all have read Pilgrim's Progress or the children's version of it? Um, if you don't want to read the whole thing, please just read the children's version, a good one. It's an amazing story, um, and it will complement reading this book but only if you're snorkeling or scuba diving, no pressure if you're on the beach. So the celestial city, an excerpt, the talk they had with the shining ones was about the glory of the place, who told them that the beauty and glory of it was inexpressible. There, said they, is the Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the innumerable company of angels, and the spirits of just men made perfect. You are going now, said they, to the paradise of God, wherein you shall see the tree of life and eat of the never-fading fruits thereof. And when you come there, you will have white robes given you, and your walk and talk shall be every day with the king, even all the days of eternity. So there's a resonance there, and then if you really want some resonance, the description of heaven and Frodo's dream and the fellowship of the ring and then Gandalf's answer in the return of the king and Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings trilogy. How many of y'all have read any of The Lord of the Rings or watched the movies? Oh, good, that's better. Okay, so one of the things that's so beautiful in this is that there was a line that came into Tolkien's heart and soul about a far green country before he ever wrote these books. And that line just stayed with him. And in some ways, these stories built themselves around that line. And it was a line that he shared with Lewis. And so if you, if you read the, um, these books, the first one, The Hobbit, sort of stands on its own. And then the Lord of the Rings trilogy, there's the Fellowship of the Ring, the Two Towers, and then the Return of the King. And they're deeply Christian, works. But early on in the Fellowship of the Ring, there is a part, um, and and you see this character uh, is so amazing, Tom Bombadil. And Tom Bombadil does not appear in the movies, and I love the movies, but my biggest complaint about them is that Tom Bombadil is not there. And you may think, why is he talking about this? But the, the reason is that when they're in this house of Tom Bombadil, who is a someone who is a a God figure like the creator, like the creation in Genesis. Um, Frodo is in his house, and he has this dream, and he hears a sweet singing running in his mind, a song that seemed to come like a pale light behind a gray rain curtain, and growing stronger, 
to turn the veil all to glass and silver until at last it was all rolled back and a far green country opened up before him under a swift sunrise. And it's a beautiful description that has a lot of resonance with this country where the best lands. But Tolkien frames the story, remember that's the first volume, at the end, and this is actually in the movie, if you remember the scene where it looks like all is lost and they're in the white city at the end and they're being attacked and surrounded by all these enemy hordes and Pippin the little hobbit is up there with Gandalf the wizard and he says, what, what will it be like? I didn't realize the world was going to end in this way. And as they talk, Gandalf says, there, there are some things that you are not meant to understand. And then Pippin presses him, well, what will it be like when we die? And Gandalf says, the gray rain curtain of this world rolls back and all turns to silver glass, and then you see it. What, Gandalf, see what? White shores and beyond a far green country under a swift sunrise. And so that whole framing from the very beginning shows up at the end of the story and then again in the books, when Frodo gets on the ships that go to the Grey Havens, and he arrives at the Grey Havens, which is essentially paradise, he comes on the ship through a gray curtain of rain, and the curtain lifts, and before him he sees a white shore and a far green country. And it's just, it's beautiful because it is like what you see in the scriptures with the prophecies about heaven being described and described, and then finally when you get to the book of Revelation in chapter 21 and the new heaven and the new earth come down and you see there's a tree of life just like back in the book of Genesis. And none of this is an accident. And Lewis is dialing into that same material about the far green country and paradise and heaven. All right, I could have gone much longer on that, but I'm stopping myself. Uh, so some major themes here, the beauty and strength and solidity of heaven. Listen to how Lewis puts this. At last, the top of the cliff became visible like a thin line of emerald green, stretched tight as a fiddle string. Presently, we glided over that top. We were flying above a level grassy country through which there ran a wide river. Through the open door there came to me in the fresh stillness the singing of a lark. I got out. The light and coolness that drenched me were like those of a summer morning, early morning, a minute or two before the sunrise, only that there was a certain difference. I had the sense of being in a larger space, perhaps even a larger sort of space, than I had ever known before, as if the sky were further off and the extent of the green plain wider than they could be on this little ball of earth. I had got out in some sense, which made the solar system itself seem an indoor affair. I noticed that the grass did not bend under their feet. Even the dewdrops were not disturbed. It was the light, the grass, the trees that were different, made of some different substance, so much solider than things in our country, that men were ghosts by comparison. Then from the book of Revelation, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And then Hebrews 11, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And clearly, Lewis and Tolkien both are using the realm of fiction 
to take this longing for the beauty of the heavenly Jerusalem that's described here in Revelation and portraying little bits of it in these chapters. And the further we get in the book, we're going to see more and more descriptions of this. And I want to just add, if you have not ever studied the stained glass window over the altar at St. Philip's, please do that. And please get Penn Haygood's pamphlet that she's written about it, because our stained glass window describes that scene. And if you look up at the top, you see the river of life and the tree of life and the throne and the trees planted with the leaves for the healing. It's just absolutely unbelievable what all is in there. So second theme is the beauty of the heavenly beings. Because they were bright, I saw them while they were still very distant. And at first I did not know that they were people at all. Mile after mile they drew nearer. The earth shook under their tread as their strong feet sank into the wet turf. A tiny haze and a sweet smell went up where they had crushed the grass and scattered the dew. Some were naked, some robed, but the naked ones did not seem less adorned, and the robes did not disguise in those who wore them the massive grandeur of muscle and the radiant smoothness of flesh. Some were bearded, but no one in that company struck me as being of any particular age. From the book of 1 John, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him just as he is. This is one of those scripture verses that we, if you're a Christian, you probably heard, but we don't really think about it very much. And I just want to pause to say, Look at what this says. We know that when Jesus appears, and they're talking about, or the uh, writer is talking about, when Jesus appears in his glory, coming back at the end of the age, that when Jesus appears in his glory, we shall be like him. Now that should blow your socks off. We shall be like him, this poor, mortal, feeble, frail, flesh that has known death will be like the returning Son of God, part of the Trinity, and we will see him just as he is. Remember in the Old Testament, if you gazed on the face of God, you would die. We will see him as he is. This is a promise of Scripture, and it is a glorious, glorious destiny. And then Philippians talks about the same thing. Christ will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. That we will be transformed. Um, listen to the great uh, piece in the Messiah about we shall be changed, the trumpet shall sound, and the dead will be raised. Oh, so good. Uh, the other thing, if you've read much about the description of angels in the scriptures, you'll notice that angels are always associated with light and some sort of mysterious kind of shining, not like the horror movie, The Shining, uh, but a good kind of shining um, that is full of beauty and light and is stunning and attention-grabbing. But the other thing about it, that just like in the story, it's a little scary. There's a reason why every time an angel appears in Scripture, the first thing the angel says is, be not afraid. Uh, it's because people are frightened because of this light and this majesty and this beauty and these dimensions that are so much more than what we have on this earth. And Lewis does some of the most beautiful descriptions of what this uh, resurrection body may be like. Another place I would commend to you to read, um, how many of you have read Lewis's The Silver Chair in the Chronicles of Narnia? Uh, that is currently my favorite one of the Chronicles of Narnia. I sort of go back and forth, but there's a beautiful part in there. If you remember, 
Prince Caspian is the prince that they met when he was a young man. When they come back to Narnia, he is an old man, and because they muff up some things, he dies, and they're really sort of unable um, to be able to catch up with him or do what Aslan told them to do. And so they go up into Aslan's country, and there's a stream there, and lying in the stream mysteriously is the corpse of the elderly Prince Caspian. And so the stream is running over him, and the children don't understand what's going on. And so Aslan asks one of the children to find a deep, sharp thorn and to cut it off. And so the child does that, and then Aslan holds up his paw, and he says, drive the thorn into my paw. And the child's like, no, no, and Aslan says, you must. And so he does, and this great drop of blood drops out of Aslan's paw into the stream where Caspian is and colors the water. And as the water flows over Caspian, he is transformed. And all of the gray and age and debility and all of that is washed away, and he becomes young and vigorous and beautiful and comes up out of the water and first embraces Aslan and then embraces his friends. If you can read that without crying, it will be amazing to me. But it's such a beautiful illustration of what Christ intends for us uh, in the resurrection life. So that is going to be something that is going to continue as a theme in this story. So we have been uh, observers on the outside of a lot of deep heavenly truth and beauty in this chapter where Lewis is setting the stage for what's going to happen when some of these ghosts that you can see through begin to try to interact with these radiant, solid beings of grandeur, which is what we will get next week. So just to close this quotation, I believe to be sure that any man who reaches heaven will find that what he abandoned even in plucking out his right eye has not been lost, that the kernel of what he was really seeking even in his most depraved wishes will be there beyond expectation waiting for him in the high countries. Let us pray. O oh Lord Jesus, what a glorious destiny you have prepared for those who love you. What no man has seen nor ear has heard, you have prepared for those who love you. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts to the wonder of, and depth and richness of your salvation. Lord, we pray that as we read this story, our hearts would be full of longing for that far green country, that beautiful land, that paradise that you have prepared for your saints. Lord, we pray that you would help us not to be obsessed with all of the things below that occupy us and fill us with anxiety, but that instead we would cling to you and know that we are your beloved children. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for coming. We will see you next week when we see what happens when the ghosts encounter the solid people. <laughs>